This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Healthcare Triage, On the Media, This Week in Blackness, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, MarkFiore.com, The Rachel Maddow Show, Activism from Voices for Vaccines, and The Tom Hartman Program. In 1998, an article was published in The Lancet that followed the cases of 12 children with developmental regression and gastrointestinal symptoms, such as diarrhea or stomach pain. Nine of these children had autism, and eight of the nine had parents who thought the symptoms of their autism had developed after the vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella, or the MMR vaccine, was administered. This was not a randomized controlled trial, nor even a scientific study. It was merely a description of a small group of children. To be honest, it's difficult to imagine that this study could get published in The Lancet today. But based on the beliefs of the parents of those eight children, a frenzy of fear about vaccines and autism has ensued for more than a decade. That's the topic of this week's healthcare triage. Let me start with some caveats. I'm a pediatrician and a health services researcher. I see kids with autism. I treat kids with autism. I've even been part of funded NIH research to improve the ways we screen for and diagnose autism in children. It's a real condition that is increasing in prevalence and has a significant impact on children and families across the world. I do not deny in any way that we need to do more about autism, but it has nothing to do with vaccines. And every dollar that we waste on that topic is a dollar we can't spend on important research or treatment to help children with autism and their families. The initial article I mentioned in The Lancet was not a study. It had no real statistics improved, no association or causation. But it caused so much concern that it led to a whole bunch of real studies to combat it. Just one year later, in 1999, a study was published in the same journal. No difference was seen in the age of diagnosis for those who did and did not receive vaccines. That meant that either there was no association between MMR and autism, or that it was too weak an association to be detected even in a larger sample of children. Some were unimpressed. They still were concerned. In 2001, a study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that looked at data on over 10,000 kindergartners born in California from 1980 through 1994. The incidence of autism over that time increased from 44 per 100,000 births to 208 per 100,000 births. That's a 373% increase. MMR coverage, on the other hand, rose from 72% to 82%, a relative rise of only 14%. It was determined in this study that the relatively small increase in MMR could not possibly be responsible for the huge increase seen in autism. The next year, in 2002, a study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that followed all children born in Denmark from 1991 through 1998. They obtained data on over 537,000 children born in those years. They could find no association between the development of autism and the age of vaccination, the time since vaccination, or even the date of vaccination. That same year, a similar study was published in the journal Pediatrics. It followed over 535,000 children in Finland born between 1982 and 1986. It, too, could find no association between the MMR vaccine and autism. In 2004, The Lancet published another study, which matched 1,294 kids with autism against 4,469 kids without it. They found no relationship between the MMR vaccine and autism. In 2004, 10 of the 12 authors of that first Lancet paper retracted the supposition that the MMR vaccine could cause autism. This kind of thing is unbelievably rare in the medical literature. An 11th author could not be contacted before the retraction. 
Only one researcher, the main one in fact, held firm. For the record, that researcher is no longer licensed to practice medicine in the United Kingdom. In 2005, a systematic review or study of studies examining the effectiveness and unintended effects of the MMR vaccine was published in the Cochrane Collaboration. They identified 31 studies which met the criteria for their review. After a thorough investigation, even though the MMR could be associated with a number of side effects or other issues, there was no evidence for an association between the vaccine and autism. And in 2012, they updated their work. This time, the research they found included five randomized controlled trials, one controlled trial, 27 cohort studies, 17 case control studies, five time series trials, one case crossover trial, two ecological studies, and six self-controlled case series studies. All of these together involved about 14,700,000 children. And in all that data, they could find no link between vaccines and autism. Because there is no link. And another study, no matter how many times you ask for one, isn't going to overcome this massive amount of data. Humans try to make sense of the world by seeing patterns. When they see a disease or condition that tends to appear around the time a child is a year or so old, as autism does, and that is also the age the kids get particular shots, they want to put those things together. Parents watch kids more carefully after they get shots. Sometimes they pick up on symptoms then. But just because two things happen at the same time doesn't mean that one caused the other. This is why we need careful scientific studies. And as I've outlined here, there have been many, many such studies that have failed to find any real evidence to support the hypothesis that vaccines cause autism. And don't tell me it's the mercury and thimerosal that's to blame. There has been no thimerosal in infant vaccines since 2003, and autism hasn't disappeared in the last decade. This was all because of one paper a decade and a half ago that describe the beliefs of the parents of eight children with autism. And that's what makes the next part in this all the more tragic. In 2011, the British Medical Journal released an article which described in detail how that 1998 Lancet paper wasn't just junk science, it was a lie. It described how the main author, the only one who still supports its findings, changed the records, changed the stories, and changed the numbers to create the appearance of an association where none existed. The journalist who wrote the BMJ article tracked down the patients in the study and showed how none of their stories or information matched up to what was published in the final paper. He found that there were discrepancies as to whether the children actually had regressive autism. He found that there were falsifications and other symptoms that were alleged to cause the autism. He even discovered that dates had been changed. Although the Lancet paper alleged that 8 of the 12 patients reported symptoms days after the MMR vaccine, the BMJ investigation confirmed that for almost all of these children, that wasn't the case. And if that wasn't bad enough, it turned out that all of the patients had been recruited by anti-MMR campaigners. The study was also commissioned and paid for by a group that planned litigation against the vaccine manufacturers. The British Medical Journal called the original Lancet paper a fraud. It's easy to become cynical about people's loss of trust and understanding in science, to the point that you think it's unlikely that we will ever be able to convince some people that the MMR vaccine is safe. That's a tragedy in and of itself. It's easy to believe that the perpetrator of this fraud will not suffer the repercussions he deserves. Many still continue to lionize him and believe him to be a victim of some powerful cabal. It's hard for me to be dispassionate about those who abuse the trust people give physicians. I get even more riled up when someone violates the rules of ethical science. I think it's likely that children have not been given an MMR vaccine because of this fraud. I think it's likely children have gotten sick because of this fraud. I think it's likely some children have died. I hope we can find some way to change that in the future.
This week, finally, reality began to dawn. Not quackery, urban myth, and belief, but physiology and contagion and sickness. Now to the latest on the measles outbreak. The government says 102 people are infected across 14 states now. And the American Academy of Pediatrics is urging families to vaccinate their children against the disease. Measles outbreak, the biggest in years and traced back to Disneyland. The measles outbreak spreads to a fifth Bay Area county. One local pediatrician accuses vaccination opponents of undermining a basic survival concept. Yes, they did, which is why this outbreak was literally inevitable. The measles, mumps, rubella vaccine had essentially eradicated those childhood diseases in the United States. But when parents began to stop vaccinating their kids, they were creating not just potential patients, but vectors spreading the disease to the vulnerable, such as the baby's pre-vaccination age infected this week in a Chicago daycare center. And whose fault is all of this? Well, mainly, it's the media's fault. The nightmare began in 1998 when a British con man named Dr. Andrew Wakefield faked results and published an article in the prestigious medical journal The Lancet fraudulently claiming a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. It was a lie, which the journal should have figured out long before finally retracting the article 12 years later. By then, the bogus linkage had already spawned a movement of heartbroken parents struggling to understand what or who was to blame for their children's afflictions. Trading as it was on the counterfeit currency of pseudoscience, that movement first languished as a relatively obscure Internet subculture until it was given vast exposure and lethal credibility by the media. The likes of Larry King and Oprah simply could not resist the apparent controversy, combined with the celebrity of the anti-vaccinators sexpot spokesperson Jenny McCarthy. Here she was on CNN in 2012. So you ask any mother in the autism community if we'll take the flu, the measles, over autism any frickin' day of the week. So I think they need to wake up and stop hurting our kids. McCarthy isn't trained in medicine, virology, or pharmacology. She's a Playboy playmate turned TV personality. But her son, Evan, had been diagnosed with autism, and she's a blonde bombshell. For newsrooms, especially TV newsrooms, this was in every sense a no-brainer. And McCarthy was invited to peddle the dangerous vaccines canard far and wide. Here she was on Oprah explaining why medical experts are wrong and she is right. My science is named Evan and he's at home. That's my science. In the past five years, Wakefield himself lost his license to practice medicine and not a single scientific study has located any correlation whatsoever between vaccines and autism. But the myth persists. And why? Because, though the science is unequivocal, the media are not. The U.S. measles outbreak and the vaccine controversy, parents, doctors, even politicians now weighing in on both sides. First on the rundown this morning, the escalating number of measles cases and the growing debate over vaccinations. It's turning into a full-fledged political firestorm. As the measles outbreak spreads to 14 states across the country, the debate over vaccinations intensifies. Those clips aren't from 1998. They are from this week. 
for crying out loud, there is no controversy. There is no debate. Cynical politicians like Rand Paul and Chris Christie may pander all they want to frightened moms and the tinfoil hat crowd, just as 49 U.S. senators can deny man's role in climate change. But there is no rational basis for their beliefs. They are simply wrong. And when the media frames such idiocy as one side of a debate, they are not only legitimizing ignorance and demagoguery, they are threatening the lives of children. Here's the thing about reality. It doesn't care what your opinion is. It doesn't care what your ideology is. It doesn't care what you believe in your heart. It doesn't care what a website says. And it doesn't even care what a majority of Americans think is true. Reality just is. It can't be balanced by lies, superstition, or even true conviction. And any attempt to do so courts catastrophe by aiding and abetting very dangerous fools. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. So there's a measles outbreak right now. It is, um, it, there are more than a hundred people across 14 states that have been infected. The outbreak has been traced to somebody, patient zero at Disneyland in California. And uh, apparently, or there are a lot of doctors that agree that the reason that California started this outbreak is because there are a lot of Californians who are refusing to vaccinate their children. Okay, so when I said that Californians don't get sick, I didn't mean that you guys don't have to vaccinate. I said (laughs) you guys are more robust due to your incredibly positive living conditions, not that you guys were invincible and no longer had to take care of such things like vaccination. Yeah, well, you know, you have a lot of, you, you have people like Jenny McCarthy, Rob Schneider, Holly Robinson, Pete. These are all celebrities who have signed on to the absolutely scientifically disproven claim that, uh, vaccinations are linked to autism. So there's an MR, the MMR vaccine. It vaccinates, uh, against measles, mumps, and rubella. Mm-hmm. And most schools and school districts require you to vaccinate your children before they can go to school. There are some exemptions to that. One of them is a medical exemption. So, for example, if little Timmy has cancer and he's immunosuppressed and his body can't handle the immunizations, he can, his parents can go to the doctor, his, 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 uh, his oncologist, get a doctor's note explaining why little Timmy can't get vaccinated. 
There are also religious exemptions where you can say, Jesus didn't like vaccinations, and therefore I don't like vaccinations. And you can be exempt from, if the Department of Education agrees with you that it is part of your religious belief system to not vaccinate, then you can get a religious exemption. There's also a personal exemption, which basically means I don't want to vaccinate my goddamn kid because I just don't feel like it. And that is where everybody who is not getting medical exemptions, they're like legit. I I honestly think the only legitimate exemption is a medical exemption. I think the religious exemption is bullshit. But we in this country tend to be big fans of things like freedom of religion. So we're all that stuff. So we're, so we're actively questioning science more aggressively than we question religion in this country. Right. Oh, oh, yeah. We've been doing that questioning science but like we're questioning science like i understand if you're like the if you want to question like the the presence of mars great whatever knock stuff out we, we we've never been there we sent some robots great but i thought like the science that's directly around you is the science that we don't question like the science that has been tested on millions of people because we're all available you get lots of humans an infinite supply of humans to test your stuff on and when you find out something works, you get to run it back over and over again. So something like various vaccinations that are kept us safe for 50, 60, 80, 100 years. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, measles was supposedly eradicated in 2000 in the United States. But, uh, but you know, doctors still recommend that parents vaccinate their children to prevent the spreading of the disease, of diseases that come from overseas. And so, I mean, to get a little bit scientific here, the real reason that this out, these, this outbreak is occurring is because we have dropped below the necessary vaccination level that, uh, that, um, is required for herd immunity. And herd immunity, as I understand it, is essentially, um, a level at which enough people are vaccinated so that it prevents the spread of the disease and so that if you know, one person does have the disease. So many people are vaccinated that it won't spread. And it'll also help keep people who are not vaccinated from getting the disease. So for people who are immunosuppressed, like little Timmy with cancer, he actually needs Jenny from the block to get vaccinated because Jenny from the block is, is very, very healthy. So she gets the vaccine. And so basically she and all of her healthy friends are helping little Timmy and all of his cancer-ridden friends of course, from Jen- contracting measles. Of course Jenny from the block is healthy. Jennifer Lopez is a multimillionaire. She's good to go. <laughs> of course she's, of course she's a healthy, so she's good to go. Yeah, this is without question. Jennifer Lopez should be getting her vaccinations. Yes, I don't know why she would stop. It'd be rude. Exactly. And so the CDC estimates, I I just read, I actually was writing a little article about this, so I have all this information fresh in my head. Mm -hmm. The CDC estimates that kindergartners need to maintain a vaccination level of about 92 to 95%. So that means 92 to 95% of all five and six-year-olds need to be vaccinated in order to maintain herd immunity, in order to protect those little kids, the sickly kids, from contracting diseases like chickenpox, measles, mumps, rubella, what have you. Um, that herd immunity level has dropped, for example, in Marin County, which is right here in the Bay Area. There are, a, there are something like, I think in 2013, something like 7.8% of parents opted out of vaccinating their kids, claiming that there, there was some sort of personal exemption. So this days. isn't even medical or religious. It's just, a bunch of hippies who are watching Jenny McCarthy talk about vaccines lead to autism and they're refusing to vaccinate their kids because they, they're like, ah, oh, I don't want to. Meanwhile, they're sending their kids to school and a bunch of unvaccinated kids are, are threatening the lives of kids who literally cannot get vaccinated because the vaccines might kill them. And so when you think about it, it's really truly ridiculous because there are some school districts in California 
that prohibit bringing peanut butter into schools. So kids are not allowed to bring peanut butter sandwiches or anything peanut butter related because peanut allergies are so prevalent. Little kids can die going to anaphylactic shock. So the best thing to do is to just ban peanut butter in, in schools. So they're banning peanut butter. Meanwhile, they're letting potentially disease-ridden children <laughs> wander around willy-nilly. Maybe they have measles. Maybe they don't. If you get measles, you're contagious for about two days before you even get any symptoms. So you could just be disease-ridden, spreading measles around your school because your parents don't want to vaccinate, but don't eat any peanut butter in school. I don't have any issue with you having a bad feeling about science. Anti-vaccination people specifically. I don't mind if you have a bad feeling about science. There's certainly enough movies and comic books that it can affect what you feel about science. But first, you need to look at science then. If you have a bad feeling about anything science dictates, then look it up. Science tends to have lots of data. Real science tends to have lots of provable data and things you can just look up in your leisure time. Available things that you can then, if you have a bad feeling about vaccinations, which is your right to have a bad feeling about something, you really need to spend some energy, um, you know, looking up the dangers of you going through with this bad feeling and letting this dictate how you take care of your children. Because you as a parent can have a terrible feeling about it. It's your parent. You, you know, you, 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 you hear things differently. Your life experience is taken in another direction. But for the sake of your children, please do some <laughs> mild research. Just any level of research would do. Just, it's very simple to find out that it's best to vaccinate your children. Even like you said, just for the benefit of other children. Right. Of other kids. Not even right. your, not even your, your kids. Other kids need your kids to be vaccinated, which is what would push me in the right direction. It's like, oh, so it's actual proof that I need my kids, my kid can save the other kids. And that'd be great because my kid, you know, at a certain age, my kids are not doing anything like little Muppets. They don't do anything anyway. So the least I can do is have them being vaccinated and saving the lives of other kids because they ain't going to do anything else but cost me money. Little Muppets running around at five, not doing anything. That's the least (laughs) I can do with this little Muppet I have waiting for it to grow into something that can contribute to society is vaccinated and not have it tangibly get other children sick. Yeah. Yeah, and the funny the thing is about science is that there's always going to be a certain amount of junk science out there. So if you are prone to paranoia or you're prone to giving in to these bad feelings or if frankly if you are of a mindset to where you believe something and any facts to the contrary will never get through to you, aka conservatives. <laughs> Although in this case there are I mean the the there's no real partisan divide in anti-vaxxers. They they come from left and right. A lot of libertarians. But you know, there are studies out there that say, oh, yeah, you know, vaccines are linked to autism. And so if you're believing junk science, if you're believing science that hasn't been peer reviewed, then you might be inclined to be like, oh, crap, my kid's going to get autism. But part of the problem with this whole idea of, oh, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid because autism um, is that it's sort of it's sort of seems like people would rather die of measles than potentially have an autistic kid. Mm -hmm. And there is actually an autistic woman who has been sort of um, firing back at anti-vaxxers, saying that they're treating her as if she's a monster because they think that autism is a worse fate than dying of measles. And so, you know, she says that it just doesn't make sense how scared anti-vaxxers are of autism. Yep. To the point where they are willing to expose their child to a disease that could kill them. Rather than risk, than take the risk of having an autistic child, even though there is no link between autism and vaccination. <laughs> so it's really just multiple levels of fuckery that we're dealing with here. That's so much hearsay. 
That, that literally, it it boggles the mind. I almost need so so wait. So people who are anti anti vaccine vaccination are fearful of their children getting autism to the degree where they would suggest that they would suggest their kids could die instead of having autism, even though autism is something purely entirely manageable, especially compared to dangerous lethal diseases that we're trying to avoid. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Okay. That's pretty much how it goes. And there are some people who are just like, well, you know, if you get, sometimes people die. You get measles and you die. That just happens. You know, maybe there's something wrong with you. Like, this is what some of these anti-vaxxers are saying whoa. to parents whoa. who are like, my kid has leukemia. Can you please get vaccinated? Because we really need the healthy people to get oh. vaccinated to protect kids like mine. Oh, you ever want to hear, you want to hear, everyone hear a story about me running over somebody and backing up over them like Suge Knight is when I hear somebody tell me to my face that sometimes your kid may have to die of measles to my right. face. Right. Oh my God. You better tell me that on a message board. There's no way you tell me that at a PTA meeting or any type of uh, school function. That's when the chair goes airborne, Amani. Trust me. Please. Yeah, I mean, there's this woman, and she's an anti-vaccine activist, this woman in Minnesota, who literally said that, she said, yes, on occasion, someone gets measles and dies, but you can't base your life on a few people. You have to ask, what's wrong with them? Why do they die when most people don't die? Oh, wow. I mean, this is, this is, yeah. It's it's bananas. And so part of, I mean, some people are, are suggesting that states that have this um this personal exemption rule abolish it because essentially if all the people who are not vaccinating their kids because they don't want to or Jenny McCarthy or whatever if they start vaccinating their kids then we'll get back up to that level of of vaccination required for herd immunity and herd immunity protects everybody yeah, um yeah. And, and you know and the funniest here's an interesting little tidbit the two states that don't have any exemptions no exemptions you have to vaccinate your kid unless they only have medical exemptions. Oh, I think they only have medical and religious exemptions. There are not that many people that claim religious exemptions because they actually can question whether or not it's sincere. Like, because a lot of times people will go, or from what I've been reading, people will go and ask for a religious exemption, and then they'll, and then when they, when they're asked why, they list a bunch of health reasons. And so the person who is deciding whether to give you the exemption will be like, well, actually, you're just trying to couch all of your health-related paranoia in religion it's not really that sincere or genuine, so no, you can't have this religious exemption. So at any rate, Mississippi and West Virginia are two states <laughs> that do not have this personal exemption. Their their vaccination rates are like 99.7%. Yes. So if we all die of bubonic plague because a bunch of assholes won't vaccinate their kids, it's going to be up to Mississippi and West Virginia to rebuild civilization. There is a, a 
kind of a, a, a conventional wisdom, which often is not conventional or it is certainly not wisdom with regard to the anti-vaccine movement, that it is just kind of hippie liberals that are against vaccination. And it turns out that that is not at all the case. Um, we should not assume that uh, because we are seeing some of the outbreaks in areas that are traditionally considered liberal areas, northern San Francisco, southern Marin County, etc., uh, we also are seeing low vaccination rates in groups that are by no means hippie liberals. And this includes the Amish in Ohio, Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, by no means, Lewis, groups that are traditionally considered liberal. And we actually now have some data about this. There's a 2013 paper in PLOS1 uh, where Stefan Lewandowski and two of his colleagues studied what makes people reject vaccines? And they got pretty complex results. First of all, they found that while political conservatism made some people a little bit more pro-vaccine, having a free market ideology also associated with conservatism in the U.S. also led people to be against vaccines, towards having, uh, I guess, what you would call skepticism towards vaccines, although I don't think that's the term we should be using, and I'll tell you why a little bit later. In 2014, Yale's Dan Kahan purchased, uh, published results from a nationally representative survey, which led him to conclude that the ideology of vaccine fears is not driven by left-wing ideology. In fact, he found that respondents formed more negative assessments of the risk and benefits of childhood vaccines as they became more conservative and identified more strongly with the Republican Party, however, to a slight uh, to a slight degree. So what we can certainly say with certitude, Lewis, is that the anti-vaccine movement is not a hippie liberal movement. And what we can say with some degree of certitude is that there a, may be a slight correlation between conservative ideology and being against vaccination. But what we are um, abundantly, what is abundantly clear to us is that this is a movement that is on both sides of the political spectrum, albeit for different reasons. I think there's a reaction for most people when they hear anti-vaccine. You just automatically kind of think of a certain type of person from California. And um, that's just, uh, you know, when this whole thing started, that just happened to be a hot spot for a lot of the, the anti-vaccine uh, activity. It did. And, you know, if we explore the kind of more left-wing ideologies that might make someone anti-vaccine, part of it is certainly distrust of corporations. But on the right, you see distrust of government agencies like the CDC, for example, being used to justify the exact same anti-vaccine sentiment. So I think what we could say, Lewis, is that whether you're on the left or right, you can find reasons that correlate with your political ideology to reject vaccines and ignore the science. And we have discussed studies that point out that Republicans, uh, the Republican mind, tends to be governed more by fear. And certainly um, being terrified of vaccines and a, and a big brother government would um, would lend itself to this type of thinking. And that's why I think, going back to what I said before, that the term skeptic is not an appropriate term for somebody who, someone who is against vaccines. Because if you look at the definition of, of being skeptical, uh, if you're skeptical, you have doubts as to the truth of something. And anyone who actually puts their fears or religious beliefs aside for a second and looks at the science 
they would not be skeptical based on the actual definition of skepticism. They would be deniers, they might be fear mongers, but skeptical, I don't think, is the right term to apply to those who are against vaccines. Uh, maybe, yeah, uh, maybe there are a few people who are skeptical. Uh, I think if you are skeptical, you do the research. I right. think if you are afraid, you don't. I'll fight the man that turns on me if I must fight or die. I will fight for justice laws I can abide. I'll try to fight with courage to always give my best. For I must fight the fear itself that grows inside my breast. Fear is a villain and he grips you late at night. He'll catch you when your back is turned. He's watching you. So don't be afraid of the dark. The social science on this shows that when when you come out and vilify anti-vaxxers or are aggressive in talking about anti-vaxxers, that it actually hardens their position on some level. And there's some concern, and I think it's legitimate, that if President Obama came out strongly, that it would then become a partisan issue. That, and, and that's the danger here. It's not a danger that I have to deal with, frankly, because, you know, we're, we're talking on this program to tens of thousands as opposed to hundreds of thousands or millions. But, I mean, certainly we've gotten a couple emails, you know, that, that link to Gary Null. And like I say, the, the, the assertions, uh, you know, are not backed up by any links to the actual primary resource of data. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's, it's a fascinating development. I mean, look at, I mean, here, here's a story. And, and I, you know, again, you got to be careful with some of this stuff because it's it's hard to know whether or not someone is trying to demonize people. But this is pretty stunning. There was a story, a CNN.com story. And apparently they did some reporting at the Phoenix Children's Hospital. Maybe they were there for the um, Super Bowl. I don't know. Somebody went in and did that. And the story of a, a 10-month-old, Eli, too young to get vaccinated, uh, but would be especially vulnerable to <clears throat> serious complications of measles, such as deafness and brain damage or even death. His parents have a bigger worry. If Eli does have the measles, he could give it to his three-year-old sister, Maggie, who has leukemia. And uh, this is the family, uh, the Jacks. And at the in this story, this was a couple of days ago. They were afraid that uh, Eli had uh, the the measles. I'm, I'm not sure what the update is on this, but according to Arizona health officials, the woman at the clinic who put the Jacks children in danger was herself infected by members of a family that didn't uh, that, do, that don't vaccinate and got measles during the visit to Disneyland. Measles are incredibly. I think I mentioned this yesterday. Incredibly um, contagious. I think like 90% of people who are exposed to the measles get it. 
So uh, this week, uh, Maggie and Eli's father, Dr. Tim Jacks, wrote a blog post in which he expressed his feelings um, to this family that didn't vaccinate. And he talks about all the things that you would imagine. He says, you know, you've endangered others. It's not just a decision that you're making for yourself. You're making it for society, et cetera, et cetera. But CNN found another guy who responded to this. And this response is... This is bizarre to me, and this this could be a function of what we've just talked about in terms of like the polarization and people, uh, you know, get their backs up against the wall. Doctor Jack Wolfson said it's the Jacks family. This is the family who should keep themselves at home, not him. Wolfson is an Arizona cardiologist. He refuses to vaccinate his two young sons. He said the family that didn't vaccinate and endangered Jack's children did nothing wrong. Quote, it's not my responsibility to inject my child with chemicals. It's a cardiologist. Uh, in order for a child like Maggie to be supposedly healthy. As far as I'm concerned, it's very likely that her leukemia is from vaccinations in the first place. I'm not going to sacrifice the well-being of my child. My child is pure. It's not my responsibility to protecting their child. CNN asked Wolfson if he could live with himself if his unvaccinated child got another child gravely ill. I could live with myself easily, he said. It's an unfortunate thing that people die, but people die. I'm not going to put my child at risk to save another child. He blamed the Jacks family for taking Maggie to the clinic for care. If a child is so vulnerable like that, they shouldn't be going out into society. I'm sorry. I mean, it's one thing to subscribe to quack medicine and to believe that the entire vaccination regime is a scheme, I guess, to enrich pharmaceutical industry and and whatnot. Uh, but it's another to be such a huge dick about it. Just like most podcasts, this show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. I'm currently reading Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I highly recommend it to anyone interested in getting a new perspective on how American society got to where it is today. Audible is selling this book for almost $90, but it can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. So check it out, read along with me if you like, and let me know what you think. News in a nutshell. In the news today are vaccines or how to avoid killing and maiming children. After the outbreak of measles at the Magic Kingdom, vaccines are the talk of the town. Why? Because a growing number of parents who choose to not vaccinate their children have given measles a leg up. The anti-vaccination movement is made up of everyone from left-wing my-body-is-a-temple types to right-wing anti-government conspiracy theorists. 
They're one not-so-big, not-so-happy family basing their beliefs on a single discredited and fully bogus study and or hatred of government mandates. Either way, fewer people vaccinated means more sick people. Jimmy's not vaccinating can infect your too-young-to-vaccinate bouncing bundle of now-infected joy. Who cares about vaccine successes? To anti-vaccinators, they are dangerous. First, it was just a retired Playboy bunny spreading phony fears not based in science. Now, two potential presidential candidates are getting into the act. Never mind the coal dust and lead. It's the vaccines that are hurting your babies. And what better way to demonstrate your conservative credentials than by letting people make a choice, whether they kill their neighbors or not. So forget the childhood radiation dosing box or the carcinogenic transport vehicle. It's clearly vaccines that are hurting our children, right? Good night, and go vaccinate. Vaccinate your kids, vaccinate your kids, bloody vaccinate your bloody kids, bloody idiots, vaccinate your kids, vaccinate your kids, bloody vaccinate your bloody kids. I know you read some vague statistic that said it might make them autistic, but if you'd paid attention, you would know that was all debunked ten years ago. No, it's not some grand conspiracy by Big Pharma, it's just chemistry. Yes, it's toxic, that's how vaccine works, you ignorant jerks. So, vaccinate your kids, vaccinate your kids, bloody vaccinate your bloody kids, you bloody idiots, vaccinate your kids, vaccinate your kids, bloody vaccinate your bloody kids. See, there's this thing called herd immunity You're endangering your community Measles can be passed along And two kids whose parents weren't as dumb as you Yes, you have the right to choose But still, not to make your friends and neighbours ill Measles isn't just like getting zits You can die from it So, vaccinate your kids, vaccinate your kids Bloody vaccinate your bloody kids, you bloody idiots Vaccinate your kids, vaccinate your kids Do what you already should have did Just bloody vaccinate your bloody kids If you are going to have a baby and you can choose to have that baby anywhere in the world, might I suggest Finland. In the tiny European nation of Finland, uh, when you are about to have a baby, you get a box uh, that looks like this one from the government. Usually the box doesn't have an adorable little cat on top of it like this one does. Uh, looks more like this. Every expectant mother in Finland is eligible to get a box like this from the government. All you have to do is ask, and they'll send you one. And inside the box is... A tiny little infant-sized snowsuit, uh, a warm winter hat, little baby mittens, a little sleeping bag, a little sheet set, uh, socks, cloth diapers, a little baby towel, a bunch of gender-neutral outfits. Congratulations, you're having a baby in Finland. Good luck, courtesy of the Finnish government. The Finns have been doing this for nearly a century. They've been doing this since the, the 1930s. Every expectant mother in that country, regardless of income level, is eligible to get this, essentially, baby starter kit, if they want one. It arrives in a box. The box itself can even be used as the baby's first makeshift crib, if need be. It has all the essentials and then some. The idea is that, you know, no matter what your lot in life, what your socioeconomic status is, every baby deserves a good start in life, and this might help. In this country, we don't do that. Uh, here, when you have a baby, you sometimes get sent home from the hospital with some diapers, you know, maybe some baby wipes. You usually get to keep the little hat and blanket combo that it seems like every single baby gets wrapped in once they're delivered. But that's, that's pretty much about it in most places. We really don't do it like the Finns do it, at least not on a national level. No starter kits from the federal government, right? But in most states, what does arrive in the mail shortly after you have your child is a little greeting card uh, that looks like this. Peekaboo! This is a Hallmark greeting card, and it is often sent to new parents by the governor of the state in which the kid was born. Most states do this. 
Uh, here's the one that got sent around, for instance, in Arizona. Bet you're as proud as you can be of that new little branch on your family tree. Uh, and as you can see, the card is signed by then-Governor Jan Brewer and her husband, John. And right above their signature, it sort of lays out the purpose of the card beyond just the congratulations. So they say, congratulations on the birth of your baby. One of your most important roles as a parent is to make sure your baby is immunized. Keeping your little one healthy means starting immunizations by two months of age. Immunizations protect your baby against many serious childhood diseases, and we know how important your baby's health is to you. So... This is a don't forget to get your vaccines card. And it comes with a little chart, a handy little immunization schedule where you can record where and when your baby got its hepatitis B vaccine, polio vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and so on. This card is produced, as I said, by Hallmark. They produce it in conjunction with the CDC. And Hallmark then partners with the governors of states all across the country, a majority of states, to send out these don't forget to get your vaccines cards to brand new parents in their states. Hallmark's partners with a ton of governors across the country to do this, but not the governor of the state of New Jersey, Chris Christie. Guardian newspaper reporting today that uh, while previous governors of New Jersey have participated in this program, Chris Christie and his administration have opted not to take part. A spokesman for the governor uh, telling the Guardian that he was, quote, not familiar with the program, and then he stopped responding to any further questions. This is such a weird thing to be part of our presidential politics right now, but it really is. I mean, Chris Christie voicing skepticism about vaccines earlier this week has turned now to these still as yet unanswered questions about why he doesn't take part in this popular and cute vaccine awareness program in his state, which a majority of other governors do. I mean, at this, at this point, the only good news for Chris Christie on this subject this week is that maybe he looks slightly less extreme than his fellow presidential hopeful, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. I've heard of many tragic cases of walking, talking, normal children who wound up with profound mental disorders after vaccines. Rand Paul made those remarks on Monday, but this has not been going better for him over the course of the week since then. It almost feels like Rand Paul and his presidential hopes are getting a little derailed by this issue, at least right now. I mean, there's been editorializing against him in the Washington Post and in the Wall Street Journal and on conservative websites like Red State and the, the Washington Free Beacon. This was the front page of the Lexington Herald leader in his home state of Kentucky yesterday. Rand Paul plagues himself over vaccinations, potential presidential candidacy in damage control. This was the editorial in the Louisville Courier Journal today. This is the largest paper in his home state, saying that he has blown it, that he has, quote, dumped gasoline on the fire of incendiary speculation. Now, Senator Paul is not yet hiding from the press on this subject, like Chris Christie has been since his vaccine remarks on Monday. Senator Paul went on Fox News last night with my friend Greta Van Susteren and tried to defend himself on the vaccine issue by saying that everybody has just been deliberately misrepresenting his beliefs. You know, I got annoyed that people were trying to depict me as someone who uh, didn't think vaccines were a good idea. The interesting debate that sort of people missed on this is of all the political people they talked to, I'm not sure I'm any different than the president or anybody else on the position. You're going to rope President Obama into this? He now says that he has the same beliefs as President Obama on vaccines. For the record, President Obama has never said vaccine ca vaccines cause profound mental disorders. President Obama has also never said that vaccines were the first step toward martial law. 
the first sort of thing you see with martial law is mandates, and they're talking about making it mandatory. Um, I worry because the last flu vaccine we had in the 1970s, more people died from the vaccine than died from the uh, swine flu. I think you have to use your brain, but I think every individual should be allowed to make that choice. And when everybody makes their own choice, based in part on information from would-be national leaders who tell them that vaccines cause profound mental disorders, then what you get, Senator, is declining rates of vaccination in this country. And then you get shocking new outbreaks of measles, including the five potential new cases found in babies in Chicago just today. So... Rand Paul is in a ditch and continuing to dig on this one. The more he talks about it, the worse it gets. Chris Christie is being uncharacteristically quiet about everything ever since he stepped in it on the vaccine issue earlier this week. But, you know, these guys are so advanced in their planning to run for president stages that they don't really say or do anything without meaning to anymore, right? I mean, Chris Christie vetoes anti-pig crate legislation in New Jersey because obviously he thinks that's going to play well in Iowa. Right? There remains this question here. Do these guys see this issue as something that might be nationally harmful at the moment, but that might offer them some sort of short-term political opportunity that's not easy to see from the reality-based community? I mean, both Rand Paul and Chris Christie, yeah, they're getting excoriated for this in the national press, but they're also, you know, pushing back at the liberal media and yelling at reporters, which they know plays very well on the right. They both have a long history of being a little oogie when it comes to the vaccine issue. Rand Paul and his martial law comments, Chris Christie in 2009, not just meeting with anti-vaccine groups, but putting out this letter saying he would stand with them. As parents who believe that the measles vaccine causes autism, he would stand with them. Even something as simple and easy as the Hallmark card that reminds you to vaccinate your kids. Chris Christie doesn't do that. Most other governors do. With no explanation as to why. In the national press, in mainstream politics, what happened to Rand Paul and Chris Christie this week on the vaccine issue is being treated like, mm, misstatement, flub, inappropriate choice of words on an unfortunate topic that's been very embarrassing for these two men. But you know what? They both have a track record to back up their hints this week that the anti-vaccination conspiracy theorists might have a point. This didn't come out of nowhere for either of them. I mean, there's no national constituency, there's no mainstream national constituency for playing with that kind of fire, for playing with vaccine conspiracy theories. But does this play in a shorter-term game for them? Does this play with a certain part of the conservative electorate that these guys are trying to woo in order to be president? Is this not a mistake on either of their parts? Is this, for instance, an early weird play to try to win a state like Iowa?
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fighting the anti-vaxxer movement with voices for vaccines. Now, it looks like this run of I can't believe this is even a thing that needs action type segments is ongoing. Measles, a serious illness even baby boomers barely remember, is back. More than 100 people in 17 states have confirmed cases, and Disney World had a double-digit outbreak just before Christmas. Why? Because for a brief glimmer of a moment, vaccines looked like they might be risky and a generation of parents were scared into opting their children out. Many, like CNN contributor and Daily Beast columnist Sally Cohn, regrets that decision now and are talking about why they've changed their positions. Speaking out can get you attacked by right and left fringes alike. This is one of those rare topics that has skeptics on both sides. Storytelling combined with science has become a necessary tool as it has with so many issues recently. Polio survivor Minda Dentler pleads with readers at Time.com to vaccinate their children with her graphic, brave story of surgeries and pain and overcoming it all to become the first hand cyclist to complete the Kona Ironman. Dentler writes, quote, most people who oppose vaccines don't know firsthand what these diseases can do to you. They should meet me. Writer and parent Jessica Valenti joins in with her column at The Guardian, quote, When I read quotes from parents denying any social responsibility to vaccinate, saying things like, my child is pure, it's not my responsibility to be protecting their child, it makes me livid. Where once we said it takes a village, these days some people don't care if the village burns to the ground so long as their precious snowflake is left standing, unquote. Valenti's piece points out why the right wing loves this movement. Supposedly, it's about personal choice, a topic that they're keen on, unless, of course, it has something to do with someone's uterus. And the left can get taken in as part of the whole pure and healthy trend in things like food and cleaning supplies and so on. What both sides miss is that the anti-vaxxer fringe isn't just awful because they're risking the rampant return of nearly eradicated diseases. They're promoting some serious bigotry and discrimination as well. Maria Mora has a straightforward, important reminder at SheKnows.com for people who still refuse to believe the thorough debunking of studies celebs like Jenny McCarthy use to fuel the fear of vaccines. She writes, Autism isn't a punishment. It isn't a boogeyman. It shouldn't be what keeps parents who vaccinate their kids up at night. Vaccines don't cause autism, but beyond that, it's grossly ableist to talk about fear of autism in a way that pretty much flat out says, I'd rather risk my child and your child dying from the measles rather than raise their risk of becoming autistic. Now, just imagine the message that sends to people with autism. With so much to combat, we as concerned science and empathy appreciating citizens are lucky to have voices for vaccines as a resource. They are a parent-led, evidence-based nonprofit with a team of doctors and immunologists who serve on their board. The tools tab at voices for, that's F-O-R spelled out, vaccines.org has printable handouts, archived conference calls, and law manuals on vaccines as resources, community and parent toolkits, new and expectant parent toolkits, links to their kick the flu out of school campaign, because yes, people do still die from the flu, and a primer for writing op-eds to your local news outlets and for publication. Their social media feeds are active, current, and full of useful information, as well as links to local actions and updates. Visit their page, get educated, and help spread the 
facts to keep the immune compromised and vulnerable in our society protected. Also, a quick heads up for those who thought their vaccine schedule ended sometime in college, you very likely need a pertussis booster with your next tetanus shot to protect against the increased risk of whooping cough. It's back as well. It's awful. You have an increased risk if you spend time with children, and you should ask your doctor if you're due for one, as immunity does actually wear off over time. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If supporting evidence-based medicine and the health of your friends and neighbors matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Voices for Vaccines via social media so that others in your network can get educated too. Where do we go with this thing? I mean, if we know that we have made we made a conscious decision over the last fifty years or so to move from everybody being immune to these childhood diseases because they got them as children to everybody being immune from these childhood diseases, and these these diseases are deadly diseases when you're uh, an adolescent or an adult. Months will cause sterility. Measles will cause birth defects. I mean, there's bad people can die from them as well, but there's really serious side effects to these, these quote, childhood diseases. And so, I mean, there is a, a discussion, a rational, thoughtful, logical discussion to be had about whether the best way, you know, what is the best way to guarantee that everybody in the United States has immunity to measles and mumps and rubella? When I was growing up in the 50s, parents, if they, if one of their kids had one of those diseases, they would literally invite all the other kids over. We had, you know, measles parties, mumps parties, chicken pox parties. Because everybody understood that if you're that those diseases you wanted to get when you were young, you don't want to get them when you're older, when they can cause all kinds of damage. And everybody was immune because they'd all gotten them when they were young. And people went, you know, my mom took me to to a to a it was it was like a birthday party at this kid's house. I don't remember if he had measles or mumps. It was one of them, and she was like, you know, you're going to get this. And now we, I'm not sure we even had a vaccine back then for these diseases. This would have been like in 1955, 56, something like that. But now we do. And you could say, okay, well, you know, we decided to go from parents inoculating their kids basically by getting them sick when they're little. And there are some consequential side effects to that. Some kids ended up deaf. Some kids ended up blind. Some kids ended up dead. I mean, the, these diseases are... Even when children get them, these childhood diseases can be tough. 
particularly, you know, pertussis, you know, whooping cough. I mean, that, that kills kids. And that's not a disease that people went out of their way to have their kids get exposed to. So, you know, you could make the argument that we've made this decision to go from having naturally induced herd immunity to artificially induced herd immunity via the route of vaccines, and that that's very profitable for the, for the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry. And that, you know, at the, at the theoretical, hypothetical public health level may be reasonably accurate, but it also may be the best thing. I mean, there's a lot fewer side effects to a vaccine. And, yeah, I've, you know, two of my three kids had very strong reactions, particularly the MMR vaccine. They got really sick for a couple of days. But they didn't die of whooping cough. They didn't, they didn't get, get, get uh, become sterile from getting the mumps when they were 16 years old. They didn't have children with birth defects from getting the measles or rubella when they were pregnant. Well, none of them have been pregnant, but you, you get my point. This is, you know, this falls into the category of things like seat belts and safety helmets. There is a point where you say, and, and frankly, income taxes. There is a point where you say, this is what we do for the public good. This is what we all do for ourselves. Hi, Jay. My name is uh, Nick from Cincinnati, and uh, I'm so glad we're having this discussion. Um, I remember actually when this discussion first happened, when you re- referenced it, um, that's actually when I started listening to the show, and that was actually when I started becoming vegan, and since then I've become vegetarian, and recently again became vegan again. Um, actually, ironically, around the time that that uh, first voicemail about vegan issues was brought up, I think it was two episodes ago, but anyway, one thing I think needs to uh, be brought to light is the idea of food deserts. One of the callers on the most recent episode talked about food deserts, and the thing about food deserts are that people don't realize how much more people get affected by food deserts than a lot of liberals who may be in the situation that they can get food from a supermarket. And the caller who made the, the reference to food deserts, they, they, you know, it gets underscored a lot. That's actually one of the biggest things that people on like Citizen Radio talk about is the idea that a lot of people can't afford vegetables because there are no vegetables in the first place to buy. A bodega sometimes only has a banana and an apple, and that is probably it, and maybe carrots, but that's all GMOs, you know, fruits and vegetables in the first place. So we need to keep in mind with this discussion that food deserts exist for people, and the people who probably want to go vegan can't. Secondly, the whole thing about free range, the caller who we talked about, um, splitting a cow between their neighbors and stuff. You know, I can understand that. You know, that's actually probably the best option for someone who's done that, but or, you know, making the decision to eat meat. But at the same time, I feel like if you're putting that much effort into trying to eat meat the best way you can, maybe limiting how much meat you eat in the first place and maximizing on fruits and vegetables is probably going to be better use of your energy 
overall. And I think the bigger issue that the caller made, uh, I think her name was Kate, was the idea that she wasn't really talking about the general public as much as she was talking about people within the community of the left who say so many things on their, you know, Facebook and their Twitter about, you know, how much they're green and environmental and they own a Prius. But at the same time, if you're eating a cheeseburger every day, you know, I think it was that UN study that said, you know, eating a cheeseburger and driving a Prius does worse for the environment than being vegan and driving a Hummer or something like that. I heard that sentiment before. And, you know, I, I drive a fuel-efficient car, but I don't even think that's part of the matter. I mean, you know, a lot of these callers are taking for granted the idea that one person does significantly change this. And if it is within your means, then you should change it. I am living by myself. I cook all of my own food you know, food and, you know, I get my own groceries. I don't have anyone else to rely on really for these kinds of things. And I, you know, go to work every day and I also go to school every day and I have to make those choices of I have to pack my own lunch all of the time and my own meals all the time because I have to eat my own food and I cannot rely on someone else to make me my food for me. And when you start to make that change for yourself, when you think that I cannot rely on other people to make me my food, and that is when you start to get the bigger idea that I shouldn't be relying on anyone else for my food and I should get my food as selectively as possible because the people who are feeding me my food in the first place probably aren't doing it under the best of intentions, be it, you know, capitalism taking advantage of me with bad food or just, you know, bad food being the only option in general. And when I mean bad food, I mean fast food and the, you know, gross amount of GMOs that end up being in our supermarkets. So just to make it that quick, I just wanted to put that in. Thank you so much for the show. Thanks for doing your good work. And I hope I didn't anger anybody by pointing them out or whatever. So thanks again. Bye. Jay, it's Dave from Olympia, Washington. How are you today? I am calling in response to the response voicemails about the conversation around uh, diet and climate and vegetarian. Particularly, want to respond to Scott and to Bill. Um, and so up front, just the disclaimers, I think everyone is on board here that individual actions are important, but collective action in the form of government policy, whether we want to talk cap and trade or a, climate uh, a carbon tax or whatever, that's where like a fundamental solution lies. Having said that, individual individual choices matter. And so in, I, oh, I hate to be the tone police, but in response to Scott, vegetarians are not wackos, or I think as he phrased it, strident, radical wackos with their strident tones. And vegetarian is not an aesthetic lifestyle, and being a vegetarian does not make you miserable. As he said, if we want to encourage people to change, we need to make these things sound possible and doable, not strident or <laughs> deprivations or will make you miserable. It's been three and a half years, and it's funny you mentioned the timeline from the last conversation. I'm sure it was related. It's been three and a half years since I gave up meat. Not a vegan. I limit my dairy intake, but you know that's neither here nor there. But it's not a big deal. It just isn't. In terms of like, you know, weird cravings for meat, I don't have them. You know, in terms of cooking, frankly, cooking without meat is simpler, easier. The prep is quicker, the cleanup is quicker. Um, when I cook with chicken in the past, you know, you gotta disinfect everything afterwards. That's this big deal. 
tofu, man, it doesn't even need to be refrigerated. If you got the little, uh, you know, radiator vacuum pack ones, they just sit on the counter, they come out, you slice it, you grill it, you're done. It's easy. And so it's not, hmm, it's an easy personal choice. In response to Dan, it's not easy. No, I hear you. Family of six, different dietary needs. One has feeding tubes, so there's definitely going to be milk in his diet. One has food sensitivities. One has already given up all dairy, but is not willing to give up meat. It's a challenge. And yeah, so families, and, and there are always going to be special cases, and there are going to be people who are, for a total legitimate reasons, not going to be able to take on uh, a, certainly a full vegan. Probably there are people who are going to have real trouble with a vegetarian diet for either, you know, personal electric reasons or whatever. But there's no reason not to adopt it personally and to do the best you can. Somebody asked for suggestions. Some people don't like soy, just don't like the taste. I actually kind of like tofu. A good rice cooker <laughs> and high-quality uh, short-grain brown rice are my saviors. They are, um, if I need a quick meal, you know, 45 minutes on the rice cooker, I got rice. It, you know, you start it, and it, it takes no thought while it's cooking. Slice or grill some tofu or um, lentils. Uh, there's a there's a brand, a Taste Bite, and they kind of individual servings of uh, lentils and a nice uh, chana masala. And that with some brown rice is easy, quick, boom, feed everyone, move on to homework, keep, keep the evening going forward. The last point I would make is around the, the idea of being, you know, mocked or laughed at or called out or standing out in a crowd. You know, that's not a negative. That's a positive. If I'm out, you know, in public, either with our, our work group or at a conference or something, and I get the, you know, the banquet meal comes through and the first round comes around and I don't get fed until the vegetarian tray comes through, it's always a conversation starter. And the conversation always starts through and like, oh, because everybody asks, you know, they'll they'll, they'll comment on it. Uh, kids, you're in public. You're trying to make chit chat. Oh, why are you vegetarian? What's what's with that? Why did you decide not to eat meat? And it's just, it's like, I don't have to be the <laughs> the strident one bringing into every conversation the the relationship between meat consumption and climate change. People approach me and give me the opportunity to open that conversation. Climate change is important, uh, you know, our personal climate impact, I eat meat, I choose not to eat meat, specifically because of that, and it can open a conversation. Come to that, as always, great show, the, the Cuba and Greece one was super, super interesting. I learned a lot about history and, and politics, a lot of things that I was not aware of uh, in those two situations. So as always, Jay, stay awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And I'm absolutely happy to hear that the conversation on food choices is continuing nicely, just as I uh, hoped and sort of expected it would. Please keep those messages coming in. 
And, uh, you know, when, when Katie heard that today's episode would be on vaccinations, she got really excited just because, you know, she thought, like, that's a good topic to do. But also, like, boy, let's see what kind of interesting voicemails we get on that subject. And personally, I have my doubts that we're going to get any, you know, real out there uh, sorts of messages on the subject. But by all means, you know, don't don't hold back. I would love to hear any uh, comments or responses you have to the episode. The number again, 202-999-3991. I think I made my position pretty clear with this episode, but uh, if you have anything to add, I'm always, always open to hearing it. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained